Hello again and welcome. My name is William Strejcik and this is the Orient Express, a historical podcast focusing on the Middle Eastern region, its politics, historical conflicts and overall development that is much needed in order to fully understand the present-day dynamics of the region and individual countries. In this particular episode, I am going to focus on the Great Britain's expeditionary force that fought during the Great War in Palestine and Syria, commonly known as the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. Based upon the description of its activities, I am going to provide you with a general picture of the environmental struggle of the Middle Eastern battlefield and also with the overall battle activity of Great Britain and its Egyptian Expeditionary Force during its four years of fighting in this inhospitable desert area of the Middle East. So sit back and relax, as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. Before the Egyptian Expeditionary Force soldiers could engage the Turks in battle, they first had to learn how to fight in the terrain and climate of Egypt and Palestine. For some soldiers, this war against the land became an all-consuming part of their existence, dominating their daily routine and ability to fight. For the army as a whole, the landscape of the Middle East shaped the operations that it undertook. War in the desert of Sinai was very different from that in the hills of Judea. Strategic, operational and tactical approaches had to be adapted accordingly. The Egyptian expeditionary force went through two distinct phases in its struggle with nature. The first involved the crossing of Sinai and fighting in southern Palestine. The second encompassed combat in the Judean hills, Jordan Valley and on the coastal plains of central Palestine. The most prominent difficulty in the deserts of Sinai and southern Palestine was the oppressive heat. In May 1916, temperatures averaged 110 Fahrenheit or 44 Celsius in tents and 120 Fahrenheit or 49 Celsius at the outpost defenses along the Suez Canal. The diaries of a number of combatants note that on many days temperatures rose to even higher levels. Quartermaster Sergeant George Edward Lee found that 130 Fahrenheit or 54 Celsius was common in his tent in summer 1916. During sandstorms, the problem became even more acute, with temperatures reaching over 160 Fahrenheit or 69 Celsius. Such heat made it impossible for men to carry out their duties during the daytime. Defense work would be carried out early in the morning, with the men either eating or resting during the peak midday temperatures. Training would not resume again until the early evening and the night would be devoted to improving defensive works. All of this activity was expected to be carried out on a water allowance of 2 gallons a day. Due to logistical difficulties, the supply was rarely maintained at this level. Heat was not the only factor that undermined the endurance of soldiers. Sand proved a constant irritation to the men of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force and references to it abound in letters, diaries and memoirs. As Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gibson, commanding the Essex Battalion, noted after the war. The sand of the Sinai Peninsula is surely the finest in the world. It gets into everything, one's hair, eyes and ears were full of it. So was the food. It got in between the layers of the soles of one's boots, gradually forming a lump inside as hard as stone. It stopped every watch in camp. It was constantly on the move in the daytime, blown along by a wind which got up just before the sun and went down with it. It was the effects and had on the man's foot that caused the greatest annoyance. Private Albert Surrey, 
of the same battalion recalled that his battalion's camp was inundated regularly by the sand drift and as a result eating was made the reverse from pleasure. An additional problem was the glare produced by the sun on the sand, which placed a considerable strain on soldiers' eyes. Only a small number of men were lucky enough to be issued with goggles. The unvarying color of the desert created a landscape that dulled the senses of many soldiers. From a military point of view, the desert sand proved an even greater problem. Not only did it get into the clothing and food of soldiers, but it also damaged their rifles, clogging the main springs and causing misfires. The notorious Khamsin, a hot desert wind that blew across Sinai whipping up sandstorms, made desert life even more unbearable. Being hit by one of these storms was like a hot blast from an oven, with visibly reduced to a few yards while the particles of sand stung the man's skin. Coupled with the sand and heat of the desert was the irritation caused by the wildlife in Sinai and southern Palestine. The desert was not an entirely barren wilderness and a number of creatures flourished in the region. While serving on the canal defenses, Quartermaster Sergeant Lee recorded in his diary seeing foxes, cobras, sand snakes, locusts, eagles, vultures, desert hares, desert mice, chameleons and scarab beetles. In general, encounters with most of these animals added some excitement to the mundane routine of military life. It was the legions of flies that made the man's existence miserable. Flies plagued all armies that fought in Sinai, as soldiers brought with them their rubbish and soon left dead bodies upon which the insects flourished. Flies were just an irritation for the men of the Egyptian expeditionary force compared to the better nature of the terrain in Sinai and southern Palestine. The lack of cover meant that a number of major offensives had to be launched against Turkish positions across open ground. Major General Stuart Hare, commanding 54th Division, noted in his diary that the assault by his troops on 19th April 1917 at the Second Battle of Gaza crossed country without a scrap of cover. This fact was echoed by Major W. E. Wilson, second in command of the SX Battalion, who described the ground traversed by his battalion at the First Battle of Gaza as resembling a billiard table. The landscape and the climate of Sinai and Palestine thus imposed considerable hardships on the men of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force and also served to restrict the operations that they could undertake. The soldiers' first task on the Middle Eastern battlefield was to learn how to live and fight in the harsh and inhospitable terrain of the region. Acclimatization took a considerable amount of time and required much physical training. The Egyptian Expeditionary Force was fortunate that for the first seven months of 1916, combat operations in Sinai were relatively limited, allowing newly arrived units and exhausted Gallipoli veterans to adjust. From the Battle of Romani, fought in early August 1916, the Expeditionary Force's primary task would be engaging the Turks in battle. It was often the sound of battle that was one of the most significant and enduring elements of combat for the participants. Following the defeat of a Turkish force at Romani on 4th August, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps was tasked with pursuing the enemy column as it fell back from the oasis of Western Sinai. During an engagement at Bir el Bapt, Ion Idres, the trooper in 5th Australian Light Horse Regiment and a prolific post-war author, noted that the air was just one sizzling hiss. Flying bullets at point-blank range possess an awful sound. As on the Western Front, it seemed to the men of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force that machine guns dominated the battlefield. At 3rd Battle of Gaza, 
While advancing on Tel es Saba near Beersheba, Sergeant Grace's section came under sustained fire from the Turkish defenders. The intensity of action that machine gunners saw in the battle in the Middle East can be seen by the amount of ammunition expended. The 163rd Machine Gun Company fired 16,000 rounds in only half an hour while supporting a raid on part of the Gaza defenses in July 1917. Even in quiet periods on the line, the company still fired 1,200 to 2,000 rounds a day, mainly at indirect overheat targets intended to harass Turkish soldiers in rare areas. On occasion, battle in the Middle East could return to more primitive forms with men engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat. At 2nd Gaza, only a small number of men from the Norfolk Regiment reached the Turkish trenches, of whom two officers and 14 other ranks were left behind when the rest of the battalion was forced to withdraw. This group became engaged in a continuous firefight with the Turks using two Lewis guns to keep them off. Once the ammunition for these had to run out, the Turks charged the position and a bloody bayonet fight ensued. Of the original 16 defenders, only 8 made it back to the British lines. Trooper Idris's description of the 5th Australian Light Horse Regiment's fighting among the cactus hedges of the outskirts of Gaza on 26 March illuminates what close-quarter combat felt like to those involved. It was just bloody slaughter. A man sprang at the closest Turk and thrust and sprang aside and thrust again and again. Some men howled as they rushed, others cursed to the shivery feeling of steel on steel, the grunting breaths, the gritting teeth and the staring eyes of the longing Turk, the sobbing scream as a bayonet ripped home. The Turkish battalion simply melted away. It was all over in minutes. Hand-to-hand -hand combat was however rare during the expeditionary force campaigns. Bayonet wounds accounted only for 0.5% of wounds during the First World War. Nevertheless, preparation for close combat remained a key element in troops training. Many aspects of the campaign in Sinai and Palestine were characteristic of modern industrialized warfare. The Middle Eastern theater can be therefore seen in the much same way as the Western Front. Nevertheless, much of the routine and organization of trench life was shared between the European and Middle Eastern theaters. Divisions were rotated between the line and the rear for rest periods to allow them to cope with the strains of combat. When divisions were in the line, they would move brigades and battalions through front sectors and reserve areas. It does not appear, however, that there is any evidence of a live-and-let-live -live system in the Middle East, as was evident in some quiet sectors on the Western Front. This was a result of a relatively limited nature of combat along the Gaza-Bersheba position in comparison to that in France and Flanders. Following the Second Battle of Gaza and the stagnation of the front, the expeditionary force began to develop a larger and more sophisticated artillery arm. General Allenby's organizational reforms in July 1917 saw the creation of a mounted corps and two infantry corps. In the later case, both corps were given heavy artillery groups. These changes ensured that the growing professionalization of the British Army approach to warfare on the Western Front was exported to the Middle East. Over the course of the summer, divisional artillery units began to experiment with techniques they used in the British Expeditionary Force, such as flash spotting for counter-battery work. Artillery was not the only element of 20th century industrial warfare that made an appearance in the Middle East. The Egyptian Expeditionary Force turned to gas to increase its striking power as it pushed against the Gaza defenses. 
In late 1916, Murray asked the war cabinet for permission to deploy gas against the Turks. Initial reluctance in Whitehall gave way as significant evidence came to light regarding the mistreatment of British prisoners of war in Turkey and the atrocities committed in Armenia. The decision to use gas was thus as much a response to the barbarous manner in which the Ottoman state was choosing to conduct its war as the tactical obstacles faced by the Egyptian expeditionary force on the battlefield. This was different to the justification used on the Western Front in 1915, which required the enemy to use gas first, thus legitimizing its subsequent deployment by the British. A stockpile of gas shells was built up and made ready for use at Second Battle of Gaza. Gas shells were used at Third Battle of Gaza as well, this time in much larger quantities. The 4.5-inch howitzer battery, attached to 54th Division, fired 2,400 gas shells alone during the six-day preliminary bombardment. In this case, the shelling was used to reinforce the Turks' mistaken perception that Gaza was to be main point of the Egyptianary Expeditionary Forces' attack. Although not a decisive weapon on the battlefield, gas could fulfill a crucial role as a force multiplier, causing panic and confusion in the enemy's rare areas and artillery positions. The Egyptian Expeditionary Force feared, ultimately erroneously, that once they had used gas, the Germans would provide the Turks with the capability to respond in a similar manner. Gas schools were set up to train soldiers to cope with gas attacks. The men were given lectures on the history of the weapon and were then passed through a gas chamber for 10 minutes to test their protective helmets. Battle drills were also carried out while wearing masks, including live firing practices. Second and Third Battle of Gaza also saw tanks deployed in support of the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces infantry assaults. In both cases, they were obsolete versions which were no longer of any use on the Western Front. Although the tank would later come to exercise an important role on the 20th century battlefield, the early variants that joined the Egyptian Expeditionary Force were a little more than slow-moving pillboxes. They were not a cure to the problems of mobility in the First World War. This role in the Middle East remained to be preserved to mountain troops. Tanks were first used at Second Battle of Gaza to support the attack of 54th Division. Only one tank managed to cross no man's land intact and reach the Turkish defenses where it proved of brief help to the men of the Norfolk and Hampshire brigades providing fire support for a successful infantry attack on a Turkish redoubt. Throughout the war in Sinai and Palestine, aircraft played an important role in the conduct of operations. Their use grew significantly over the course of the campaign, and they performed a range of roles. In contrast, much popular literature portrays aircraft as merely an adjunct to espionage operations ferrying spies around the region. Aircraft were first dispatched to Egypt in November 1914, and by the early months of 1915, the Royal Flying Corps, the RFC, was carrying out regular reconnaissance flights over Sinai. The Royal Naval Air Service's seaplanes enhanced the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces' intelligence-gathering capabilities, collecting information on the Turkish Army's lines of communication in Palestine. By 1916, the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces aircraft had taken on an offensive role, often raiding enemy airfields in retaliation for airstrikes on the canal defenses by the German Air Service. Despite a quantitative superiority, the lackluster performance of the RFC's aircraft meant that from the mid-1916, German pilots were able to operate with impunity. German aircraft, although small in number, could fly higher and faster than their British opponents, and were better armed. 
Only with the arrival of Bristol fighters in the autumn of 1917 did the RFC equipment begin to outclass that of the Germans. This allowed the RFC, now organized as the Palestine Brigade under Major General Joffrey Salmond, to establish local air superiority over the front line at Gaza, greatly aiding the operations of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. Throughout 1918, the airspace over Palestine came to be dominated by the Royal Air Force, the RAF, as new fighter aircraft such as the SE-5A supplemented its strength. Combat in the Middle East was at times very intense, as demonstrated by the testimony in the many collections of personal papers from the combatants involved. The experiences of battle, though, were clearly not a regular feature of soldiers' lives, and instead represent a series of momentary exposures to the horrors of modern warfare. In total, the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces' losses in Egypt and Palestine were relatively limited. Across the course of the campaigns, 54,311 officers and men became battle casualties in Sinai and Palestine. In comparison to the 2.7 million casualties suffered on the Western Front, the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces' losses appeared to be relatively meager. Combat casualties tended to fall primarily on members of the battalion's rifle companies. Men serving in a battalion's headquarters staff and its logistical arm often managed to avoid the brutality of infantry attacks. From Third Battle of Gaza onwards, units were also required to keep a cadre of officers and men in the rear from which the battalion could be rebuilt if its manpower was destroyed in battle. The losses at company level and lower thus accentuated the intensity of combat evident from battalion and brigade casualties. The Egyptian Expeditionary Forces battles were often brutal and bloody at the level of the company or battalion, reflecting the intensity of combat for infantrymen in the First and Second World Wars. In such circumstances, it was impossible for the primary group, which has lain at the heart of much of the discussion of morale in the 20th century, to survive. During 1917, many brigades, battalions and companies of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force were reduced to a small cadre of battle veterans and were reconstructed with large numbers of new drafts. These men would have to be integrated into their new units before they could bond with the men around them, a process which required time and training. Primary group loyalties were simply not robust enough to endure the rigors of modern industrial combat. From the perspective of the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces' senior commanders, the losses from combat across the army were not as significant when compared to the ever-present threat posed by sickness. The army was fortunate to possess an extensive medical support infrastructure in its Egyptian base, developed during 1915 to cope with the large influx of casualties evacuated from Gallipoli. Static warfare in 1916 along the canal defenses allowed the Egyptian Expeditionary Force to refine its medical services and sanitary arrangements, resulting in a very low sick rate which continued into early 1917. Over the course of the campaign in Sinai and Palestine, soldiers were far more likely to suffer from severe illnesses that warranted their evacuation to hospital than they were to be wounded or killed in battle. This difference became even more evident when the admissions to Egyptian Expeditionary Force hospitals during 1916 to 1918 are examined. In 1916, only 1,608 men went to hospital after being wounded in combat, but 100,036,110 were admitted due to disease and injury. 
This trend continued for the rest of the war, with the ratio for 1917 standing at 29,000 wounded to 138,000 sick and injured, while in 1918 the contrast was even more startling, with 9,000 wounded compared to 229,000 sick and injured. The levels of admissions to hospital for men sick and injured thus vastly exceeded those wounded in action in each of the three years of campaigning. With the other sideshow theaters of the First World War, such as Salonika, Mesopotamia and most notably East Africa, sickness posed the primary threat to the manpower resources and thus the operational effectiveness of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. In this sense, the war in Egypt and Palestine bore greater resemblance to the imperial conflicts of the 19th century where combat losses were far lower than those incurred due to illness and disease. Medical care for troops invalidated to hospital in the Middle East was generally of a high standard, with only a small proportion of those hospitalized dying. The majority of the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces sickness cases were the result of septic sores, sandly fever or malaria. The climate of Palestine, combined with the fact that most soldiers lived in a world shrouded in dirt and dust, meant that even slight abrasions could turn septic. This problem was much greater when troops were stationed for long periods in the trenches opposite Gaza, a particularly unsanitary position. The only effective treatment for septic sores proved to be the evacuation of soldiers from southern Palestine back to base areas in Egypt. Here, they could have fresh dressings, applied regularly and be provided with fresh fruit and vegetables. Septic sores, a sandly fever, meant that the sanitation of camps in Sinai and Palestine became a constant concern for the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces medical staff. During the early phases of the campaign in Sinai, sanitary procedures were improvised by individual units. Some camps used local contractors to dispose of their waste, while others employed sweepers brought over from India. The introduction of incineration for rubbish and human waste, an unpleasant task handled mainly by the men of the Egyptian labor corps, greatly improved the sanitary situation. Mobile disinfection units, modeled on ones first used in Serbia during 1915, were established and deployed at the front, allowing the kit of 60,000 men a month to be thoroughly cleaned. Despite the considerable organizational efforts and man-hours put into sanitary precautions, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force never managed to eradicate the threat posed by the unsanitary living conditions on the front line, merely to contain it. Malaria posed an even greater problem, with the potential to debilitate large proportions of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force's manpower. Units located near to the Auja River or in the Jordan Valley were particularly at risk, as these areas proved fertile breeding grounds for the Anopheles mosquitoes that spread the diseases. In order to try to lessen the effects of malaria, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force devoted a considerable amount of time and effort to sanitary measures designed to prevent the mosquitoes breeding around the Auja and Jordan rivers. Units, while resting away from the front, were employed canalizing streams, clearing reefs from riverbanks and oiling stagnant pools. The Egyptian Expeditionary Force's medical difficulties reached its peak in September and October 1918, following the offensive at Megiddo and the rapid advance into Syria. 
In mid-September, over 5,500 officers and men were sick, and numbers only grew as soldiers advanced across the Turkish lines. The medical services had managed to control disease in the areas behind the British front. The Turkish army, due to its logistical overstretch, had made no attempt to do so in its rear or frontline areas. As a consequence, sickness was rife in many Turkish units, greatly reducing their available manpower. The Egyptian Expeditionary Forces troops were warned about the prevalence of disease in the areas they were about to enter. General instructions issued two days before the Megiddo offensive stressed that men were not to sleep in caves or native houses as they were likely to be infected with relapsing fever, typhus and sandly fever. Despite these precautions, little could be done to prevent damage to the health of the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces troops. Malaria was common in the rare areas of the Turkish army in Palestine and Syria, and as a consequence of the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces rapid advance northwards towards Damascus and then on to Aleppo, it had to traverse these malarial areas. An additional burden for the Egyptian Expeditionary Forces medical services was having to cope with a high incidence of venereal disease in the army. The problem was greatest in 1915 to 1916, while large numbers of soldiers, in particular those from the Dominions, were training in Egypt close to the temptations found in the brothel quarters of Cairo and Alexandria. In order to get to grips with the venereal problem, lectures were instigated for soldiers on the dangers of contact with the indigenous female population. War in the Middle East in 1916-1918 poses a series of questions about the modernity of the First World War and of particular theaters of operations away from much-studied Western Front. The Egyptian Expeditionary Forces campaigns in Sinai and Palestine encompass the brutality, violence and horror that are often viewed as emblematic of the First World War in France and Flanders. For the men of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, their war contained all the elements of modern industrialized slaughter, which in particular was the product of the central role of artillery on the battlefield. This was a war in which the individual's role in the battlefield had become subsumed with mass firepower solutions to tactical and operational challenge. For much of the campaign in Sinai and Palestine, the soldiers involved were busy struggling not against the Turks, but against the inhospitable climate and forbidding terrain of the region. The war with nature reflected the refining experience of many of the British Army's imperial campaigns in the 19th century. This becomes even more evident when examining the impact of illness and disease on the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. Throughout 1916 to 1918, high sickness rates tore away at the army's manpower reserves. The medical tools of a modern army could only serve to stem the impact of this problem, and in late 1918, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force was effectively rendered useless by the combined effects of battle exhaustion on sanitary Turkish positions, influenza and malaria. War in the Middle East displayed many aspects and utilized many of the tools of the 20th century military campaign, but in the end, it was the traditional enemy of armies throughout history that emerged victorious diseases. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called The British Imperial Army in the Middle East by James Edward Kitchen. 
In this matter, I highly recommend this book to anybody who would like to get even deeper knowledge about this subject since the book dwells into bigger depth not only in the case of Egyptian expeditionary force but also into other matters related to the Middle Eastern battlefield. Also, if you found this episode interesting, I will be more than glad for sharing and you can also visit my Instagram account and Facebook page called The Orient Express Middle East History Podcast, where I am regularly posting interesting stuff relating to previous or upcoming episodes. So if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button. See you next week with another episode of The Orient Express History Podcast.